Our scripture today is from John 4, 46 through 56. Please read along with me. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down to heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judah, Judea to Galilee. Well, hey everyone, my name is Nate. Good to be the lead pastor here at New City. Glad you are here today. Uh, before we get right into the uh, teaching today, I, I got my second dose of the Moderna vaccine this last week, and everybody kept saying, when you get your second dose, it's going to hit you really hard. You know, be prepared for that. And, and so because of that, my wife was saying to me, hey, you know, everybody's saying when you get the second dose, it's going to hit you really hard. Uh, so I want you to know I'm not going to wait on you. <laughs> so you know, she, she doesn't have a lot of compassion for me. But uh, in her defense, you know, uh, I, when, when we both get sick, I get sick worse. And I've been wondering, like, why is it the case that I get sick worse uh, than she does? And I have, I have found the answer. I, I went to my primary care physician, uh, WebMD, and I found on WebMD an article that reads, are men just babies when they get the flu? Maybe not. All right, maybe not. Uh, and so this is, I, I, this is interesting, but I thought she's not going to fall for a WebMD single source article. I've got to come up with a second source, like any good researcher. And so I went to Harvard Health Publishing, and at Harvard Health Publishing, I saw an article that said, is man flu really a thing? Turns out man flu is really a thing. Uh, in the article cites research, the research I have not read, uh, but the article is good enough, right? So I read the article on the internet, and everything you read on the internet you know, certifiably true. And so uh, this is how so the, the, the article points us to the, the definition of man flu as found in the Oxford and Cambridge dictionaries, because it is such a thing that man flu is in the Oxford and Cambridge dictionaries. Uh, it, the Oxford and the Cambridge dictionaries defines man flu as a cold or similar minor ailment as experienced by a man who is regarded as exaggerating the severity of the symptoms. And so I'm thinking, this is, you know, this is a good article. I want to know, you know, is, is it le legitimate, this idea that I have that I, I feel it worse? And let's just be honest, in society, men really have it worse than women. I mean, it's just the way it is. And so, uh, hear my humor, okay, on this, all right? So uh, <laughs> the article reads this way. Influenza vaccination tends to cause more local scan and systemic body-wide reactions and better antibody response in women. Testosterone may play a role as men with the highest levels tended to have a lower antibody response. And I thought, I'm just too manly. That's why I have a been that significant response. I've just got a lot of man going on. And, and so because of that, you know, the more manly you are, the worse you get sick. Apparently, this is science. It has to be, it has to be true. Uh, the article concludes this way. Taken together, these findings suggest that there may be more to man flu than just men exaggerating their symptoms 
or unnecessarily behaving helplessly. Okay? Uh, while the evidence is not definitive, they suggest that uh, the flu may, in fact, be more severe in men. And so I just want you to have more compassion, ladies, for men when they get sick. Just show them more compassion because they get it worse. They get it worse than you guys. All right. So what does this have to do with Word Became Flesh? All right. Well, we're in this series called Word Became Flesh, and we're asking really the question today is, why did the Word become flesh? And and something we've all come to realize during the COVID era is that uh, you're not enough. All right, this is a simple gospel truth. Uh, this is something the Bible teaches very clearly. Uh, this is something we have to all sort of wrestle with. This is not controversial teaching for humanity. You're not enough. Uh, there are times in life when you come to the end of your capacity uh, to handle a situation, to confront a problem, and you realize that you're just not enough for everything that life throws your way. Uh, that's the situation that this father comes in uh, two, and that's why he needs Jesus and reaches out to Jesus in our text today. So Jesus came to Cana in Galilee where he had done the first miracle of turning water to wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. And when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. And so this father came to a place where he was not enough. His son is on the bat. He's dying. Uh, he's watching his son die. He hears of the miracle worker, Jesus, uh, coming to Cana, and he goes, you know what? I, I'm not enough. I need to go get somebody who has more than me uh, to answer this particular problem I have because my son is on his deathbed. And I want to say to you, this passage is about faith, and many people, many people begin their faith when they have reached the end of themselves. And that's Okay. Many people have, have come into faith in Jesus because they, they came to the end of themselves. They just realized, I don't have enough. I don't have enough, and I need somebody who has more than I have, and I just don't have enough. And they went searching, and Jesus is who uh, they discovered. You may not realize, by the way, that Jesus is all that you need until Jesus is all that you have. And sometimes that's what happens in life. You, you come to the place where you're not enough, and you're like, man, all, the only answer I have, the only answer is Jesus. And that's not to criticize anyone who comes to faith that way. In fact, you would be surprised how normative the experience is of how many people have come to faith in Jesus because they came to the end of themselves. They realized they just didn't have enough. You see, the demands of life will at some point exceed your capacities to meet them. It just will. You'll be at a place in life. Everybody reaches it where the demands of life exceed your capacity to meet those demands. You're not an infinite being. You don't have infinite capacity. There are some things that exceed your capacity to deal with. That's just going to happen in life. So what do you do when that happens to you? It's happened to a lot of us during this season of COVID. It really has. It's happened to pastors uh, all across the country. One of the things I've been uh, hearing from pastors across the country that I talk to uh, regularly on Zoom calls and, and, and audio calls is that pastors are worn out. I read an article uh, by Tom Rainier recently, Six Reasons Your Pastor's About to Quit. Now, this is not me signaling. I'm not going anywhere, but uh, you're not going to get off that easy, okay? All right, but here's, the, here's, what, here's what the article writes. Please hear me clearly. The vast majority of pastors with whom our team communicates are saying they're considering quitting their churches. It's a trend I have not seen in my lifetime. Some are just weeks away from making an announcement. 
Why? The article says, well, you got all of the racial tension in America, you got all the, the political tension in America, you got COVID-19 happening, and all these things mixed together, and a lot of pastors are going, I'm not enough. I'm not enough. I don't have enough to, to do it anymore. But it's not just people in ministry. Uh, in Forbes magazine, William Vanderblumen wrote this. I've been in the executive search business for most of my adult life. I've never seen anything like this. More people than I've ever seen are looking to move on. That's why I'm predicting that one of the unexpected consequences of COVID-19 will be what I'm calling the great COVID job churn. I believe this massive job turnover trend could result in as much as 20% change in our national workforce at the executive level. And what people are seeing is that people have come to the place during the COVID-19 pandemic that realize they're not enough. And one of the reasons why many people are relocating is they're relocating to be closer to family because they just didn't have enough on their own to handle what was coming at them. And so he calls it a big COVID job churn. So lots of us, lots of us have felt during this season powerless. Powerless. And I want to say powerlessness if it leads us to who is really in power, isn't all that bad. Powerlessness, if it leads us to the one who is really in power, if it leads us to Jesus, it's not all bad. There's, there's something good in that. And so this father, powerless, he came again to Cana, that's Jesus. He was in Cana. Where's the father with his son dying? He's in Capernaum. It's a two-day journey. It's an overnight journey. This father has to make a decision. He's looking at his son dying, and he's like, I'm powerless here. But what if there's somebody who was powerful over there? And so he leaves in powerlessness to go seek somebody who could have the power to save his child. And faith will require letting go of your limited power to receive the one who has limitless power. And sometimes we come to a place where we go, I'm powerless. And people, when you're powerless, sometimes you scramble and you get busy doing stuff, but you just have to come to the place at some point to admit, I'm powerless. I'm powerless. But I can petition the one who is powerful. Uh, my power is limited, but I can talk. I can talk to the one who has limitless power. You see, John 1.1 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. Uh, the, <laughs> the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You see it in verse 3. All things were made through Him. Without Him was not anything made uh, that was made. Jesus is the Word. He's the Word that became flesh. He spoke everything to existence. He made it all. And so the first miracle that we see in John's gospel is the turning water to wine. And Jesus is going, you know what? I made the universe with my words. I can make wine with my words. Just, I can just do it. The second miracle, it, it points to this other reality of Jesus. Colossians says it this way, and he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. This Boy's life is falling apart. It's literally falling apart. And, and the, the father sees it falling apart. And he can't hold it together, but he goes to the one who can. Who can heal. And hold it together. And T. Wright says in his book, For All God's Worth, he says, How can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human, that the fire has become flesh, that life has walked into our midst? Christianity either means that or it means nothing. 
It is the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality of the world, or it's a sham, a total nonsense. Most people unable to cope with the saying, e- uh, saying either of those two things are condemned to live in the shallow world in between. Either he has the power or he doesn't. If you're powerless and you go to him, who has power? You see, faith, what it does is it opens, it opens the door to possibilities that would otherwise be impossible. And when you have faith, it, it opens the doors to do things that you couldn't do otherwise. And you don't need a lot of it. <laughs> Jesus says, because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have a faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. The Apostle Paul in a prayer in Ephesians 3.20 says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. Like, well, the things that were formerly inconceivable are now conceivable because God's at work. Things that you are powerless to do, God has power to accomplish in life. And so when you're powerless, you go to the one who has power, and things are, that were impossible now suddenly become possible. And so the lesson here is that you're not enough. You're not enough. And faith is believing that we are not enough. But that Jesus is more than enough. He's more than enough. Now Jesus says something to him in verse 48 after he makes this petition to do the impossible, to heal his son. Jesus says to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And this feels kind of rude in the first reading. It's like this guy's son's dying, he walks all this distance to see Jesus, and Jesus says if we speak a compassionate word to him, he's like, oh, you guys all just want signs and wonders. And the official said to him, the father says, Sir, come down before my child dies. He's just unrelenting. He's like, I, I, I'm not going to be distracted by that comment. I don't even know what it means. I just, my son needs to be healed. Elton Trueblood says this. Faith, when we think about it, is not merely intellectual assent to a set of propositions, but the supreme gamble in which we stake our lives upon a conviction it is closer, listen to this, it is closer to courage than it is to mere belief. And here this father is confronting Jesus, saying, please, do something, please, do something. You almost see him getting in Jesus' face here. Jesus saying, all you guys want signs and wonders. He's going, I want my kid healed. That's what I want. I want my kid healed. And you see, we say we're imperfect people, being courageous, believing in the power of Jesus to make all things new. Being courageous is our word for faith. To be courageous, to say, yes, we're going to be courageous. We're going to, be, we're, going to, we're going to take risk. We're going to step into a relationship that involves a little bit of risk because we believe. You could say, though, that the mother of courage is often our own desperation. And so is it, is it the father's courage here that's driving him? Or is it his desperation that his son's dying, <laughs> and his son's dying, and he's just desperate for Jesus. He comes to Jesus with desperation. Desperation is producing within him a courage to, to, to say something and to even be confrontational a little bit with the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the miracle worker Jesus. And I want you to know, okay, hear me. I mean, hear me. It is not wrong for faith to begin with our desperation. In fact, you'd be surprised. You really would. 
If you just sat down and talked to people about their faith story and their faith journey, how many people came to Jesus out of a moment of desperation, just realizing they were at the end of themselves? It's not wrong for faith to begin at the end of yourself. It's just not wrong. In fact, you would be surprised how many people would say to you, I came to the end of myself, and that's when I found Jesus. He was everything I couldn't be. I was utterly powerless, and then I met Jesus, and his power transformed me. What do you say about this? Well, Karl Marx pressed in on this reality. Karl Marx is not a friend of Christianity. Religion is the sigh of the oppressed, he writes, the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world, the soul of a soulless condition. It is the opium of the people, says Marx. He says, oh, religion is for the weak. Religion is for those who can't do it on their own. Religion is for those who need a crutch. And so I want to ask you the question, is faith a crutch? Is it a crutch? Is Marx right? Is is faith a crutch? Is is faith here for those who are struggling and hurting and who can't do it on their own? And I want you to know, without, without hesitation, yes, faith is a crutch. Absolutely, 100%. It's not those who reach out for a crutch who are fools. It's those who think they are self-sufficient that are fooled. You're not enough. You simply aren't. You can't do it all. There's a limit to your capacity. You will find yourself in need in this life because you are a flawed human being living in a flawed world, and it will come at you, and you will find yourself in need. And listen, if you need Christianity as a crutch in life, it'll be so much more than a crutch in life. A crutch in life. It'll be a healing power in your life. When pride comes, then comes disgrace, Proverbs says. But the humble is wisdom. And the humble are those who are able to admit, yeah, I have a need. I do. I'm in need. Think about it this way. Sin and death are powerful forces that you are powerless to overcome. So death, for for instance, is a reality and there's nothing you can do to stop it. You're powerless over it. You don't want it to happen. Nobody wants it to happen. You work hard to prolong the inevitable, but nobody wants that to happen, but death happens. But sin, that's a little bit more of a difficult conversation, so I just want to you know, challenge you for a second to think about your powerlessness over your own sin. Let's take, the, for example, the sin of self, selfishness or self-centeredness. You could just meditate on, on Philippians 2-3 right, for the rest of your life and you will find yourself unable to achieve its ideal. Completely unable to do it. Do nothing from selfish ambition. Nothing for, you know, out, out of just purely selfish motive. Nothing. Or conceit. Just being self-centered. But humility, count others better than yourself. I mean, you just... Every day, every day for the next five days, just give it a go. (laughs) Eliminate your selfishness, your self-centeredness from the equation. Just consider everybody else all the time. Consider them even better than yourself and their needs above your own. By the way, a society where people live like that would be fun to live in. That's not the one we live in. 
We live in a world where people can't wrestle away their self-centeredness, and there's so much hurt and so much pain relationally because there's so many self-centered people in the world. Look, we, we are, I mean, this is, not, this is not rocket science. We are dependent beings. We are dependent beings by nature. Like, we are not only in need, like, we're in need of, you know, we're in need of all kinds of things for our life. And that's how God made us, actually, to be dependent upon Him the sustainer of life. Like, you are not self-sufficient. Like, you can't do it on your own. Like, you need basic things like oxygen and water and food. Like, you're dependent. And it's not wrong, right, to start with that sort of sense of your own dependency or that sense of your own depression. Or it's not wrong to start a faith journey when, when you're kind of like at the end of yourself. Like, most relationships start with a need. Like, most relationships in life start with what we need. For, for example, as children, you come into this world with a, with, a, with a relationship circle completely and solely based upon your needs. I mean, child, children contribute nothing. They just need everything. They need food, and they need sleep, they need guidance, they need rest. I mean, they're always in need, and they cry to, to tell you, I need something, and they're always crying. I have a 16-year-old now. I'm seriously considering charging rent because he's been in need far too long, right? And we, he needs to pay, pay his dues. But children, I mean, that's how you start the world, right? In need. With friends. What's the basis of, like, seeking a friend? If it's not a need, that, that bubbles up because of feelings of loneliness. And that loneliness drives you to seek out friendship. At work, the, friend, the relationship you have with your work, you like to eat, you like to have shoes on, you like a roof over your head, you get a job because <laughs> you have needs. And you go to work and you try to meet those needs. And with spouses, there's a need. You feel it. This desire to be connected and, oh, you want to, to be in love and that's have someone love you, and it's a, it's, a, it's a need that manifests. And our needs, listen, our needs push us to reasoned risk. That's faith. Our needs push us to reasoned risk, and that's faith. By the way, like, if the needs are consistent and they're significant, those needs push you to be persistent. And faith is also marked by a courageous persistence. Just kind of a unrelenting. My need is showing up. It's manifesting. It's here all the time. And it's always reminding me. And so I'm going to start looking and I'll get on the dating app or I'll start going places I don't normally go to make friends. I'll start doing what I need to do to get a job because I have needs and they're real and I'll get persistent. So what Jesus says to this father, he says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. He's not shaken. He's just persistent. And he goes, sir, come down before my child dies. Like, I need you right now. This reminds me of Jacob wrestling with God in the garden, or, in, 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 you know, not the garden, but the, in, by the river. And he's, he's wrestling with God. And God says, let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. I'm unrelenting. I need, have a need, and I need it right now. And he goes to God that way, and it's not wrong to go to God that way. To be desperate. To that need manifesting. And to go, I'm going to be unrelenting in my request that this need met because it's a real need, and I'm going to go to, I'm powerless over it. I'm going to go to the one who has power. Well, faith, when you exercise it, it requires a mixture of reason and risk. Faith looks like that. It's reason and risk. Here's the reason. 
In John 4, 46, Jesus comes to Cana. That's how he get the news spreads. He's back in Cana where he had done the first miracle. That's the reason. So his father goes, hey, he's, he did a miracle. Everybody knows about it. Everybody's talking about it. Maybe he can do a miracle for my son. And so he's going to take a risk based on reason to go to Jesus and go, can you do something here for, for my boy? Look, in all of our relationships, every relationship, we reason our risk. Like in every relationship, we reason our risk. Uh, I'll just, for an example, uh, this is a photo of Vanessa and I on our wedding day in Boca Raton, Florida, uh, at Morikami Museum. That's where we got married, Boca Raton, Florida. I remember that day really clearly uh, because I was like super nervous. And I just kept thinking, this is forever. <laughs> you know, this is like, this is not like I don't take my commitments lightly. I was like, this is going to be a, this is for, I don't make very many forever decisions. Like almost all my decisions have like a, you know, a, a way out. This is the one I'm stuck with, you know. And it's like, I, what do I, you know, I, I want to make the right decision. So I got to reason the risk because I don't know how it's going to turn out. Just don't. When you walk to the altar, you don't, you, the altar, you don't know how it's going to turn out. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what people are going to do, and you reason the risk. I mean, we dated for a little bit. I had some reason, and then we take the risk. That's, that's faith. That's what faith is like. We accept all relationships in faith, including our relationship with God. Everything. We accept it all in faith. By the way, whenever I do a, a wedding for somebody, I always pull the groom aside right before we go up, and I always go, hey, bro, it's not too late. <laughs> it's so mean. And they get like wide-eyed. They're always sweating. That's so mean. Bruce Milne says about this passage, he says this, that God can heal is not in question. Whether he will, and if so, by what means, and over what span of time are matters of his, for his determining. His power is real. His will is love. His love is wise. I circled that in the commentary. I was like, man, yeah. His power is real. His will is love. His love is wise. See, faith is not just trusting in the power of Jesus. It is trusting in the character of Jesus. It's not just trusting he can do something. It's trusting that he's loving and he's wise in the distribution of his power and that he cares. And so in John 4, 50, Jesus said to him, go, your son will, be, will, will live. And there's something about the way that Jesus said that or how he said it or just the, the, the kind of interaction. We're not given details and all this, but the man believed. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and he went on his way. He was like, okay, Jesus, I'll take you your word. You're going to heal my son. And he left. It's wild. Wild. He's not asking for a receipt, not asking for a confirmation. He just goes, okay, all right, if you say it, I'll go. You see, you're not enough. But, but Jesus is more than enough to heal and to save. Like, he's more than enough to do both, to heal and to save. And I think that's why Jesus sends him on his way this way. That's why he doesn't choose to go and travel to go heal his son because other stories in the Bible, he does, he goes and he travels and he, he, he grabs the little girl's hand, he raises her from the dead. I mean, there's, there's stories where Jesus does like these healing things and, and, and he's, he's really compassionate, lots of touching and lots of interpersonal stuff going on, but he, this, this, this time he doesn't do it. 
He says, go, your, your, your son's healed. You see, the father wants Jesus' healing power, but what Jesus, Jesus wants to show him his saving power. This is how I know that, because what happens next? As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, fever left him. And the father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in his whole household. They came into what John would describe as saving faith, the writer of the gospel, saving faith. You see, the father wants to save his son for the moment, but Jesus wants to save the whole family for eternity. Everything that happens in John's book is pointing to belief that saves. John 20, 31, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so why does he do it this way? He does it this way because he's not about just temporarily healing a son who will later die. He's about saving a family for eternity. And he sets up the whole scenario so this father and his whole family believe. Which leads me to uh, some thinking about faith itself. The power of faith is not in the subject of faith. The power of faith is in the object of faith. The power of faith is not in the subject of faith. The power of faith is in the object of faith. Let me just sort of illustrate it this way. Uh, imagine with me a chair, okay? Uh, you, may, you probably have never had this experience, uh, but I have had this experience on more than one occasion where I have reasoned the risk. I've looked at the chair and thought, sure, that chair will sustain this mass of humanity. And I have sat in the chair, and the mass of humanity was exceeded the capacity of the chair. And I fell. And this has happened more than one time. In fact, I have been uh, around the world traveling uh, to do mission stuff, and, and it doesn't matter where you go. In a third world context, there are always the same plastic chairs in every church building that I've ever been to, the same white plastic chairs uh, all over the world. They're just there. And so I have sat in many of those chairs in a service and have had uh, an accident where I have fallen, and the chair has not sustained my weight capacity. And so what does that mean? Well, if the chair cannot hold you, the amount of my faith is irrelevant. The amount of your faith is irrelevant. Like you can look at the chair and you go, man, I'm going to have a lot of faith. I believe, right? Really believe. But if the mass of your humanity exceeds the capacity of that chair, it doesn't matter how much you believe, that chair is going to give way and you're going to fall. Your faith, the amount of your faith, the sincerity of your faith, the intensity of your faith is irrelevant if your faith isn't in something that can sustain your weight. It just is insufficient. Because faith's power is not in its quantity. Faith's power is in the quality of what it trusts in. If the, if the chair is sufficient to hold you and you put faith in that chair, you don't have to have a lot of it for that faith, that faith to be active and working. Because when you sit in that chair, it will hold you. You see, it's not that you believe that's important. It's what you believe in, or rather, more accurately, who you believe in that matters. That's what matters. Because faith's power is not in its subject, it's in its object. Faith's power is not in its intensity. It is in, it is in the reality that you're putting your faith in. That's what has the power. 
And this is eternal life. Says John in John 17, 3. The only true God in Jesus Christ whom you sent. You see, faith has power when the faith is in the one who's really powerful. See, Jesus is not content with you believing in his power and not believing in him. Which takes me back to that apparently rude comment. The man comes, obviously desperate. His son's dying on the bed. And Jesus says to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe. Like, what's going on here? Jesus is saying, you came to me for the power, but you've missed it. I am the power. You came for me to do a powerful thing, but but you missed it. Like, I'm the person who's come to save you. So you haven't been saved by a power. You've been saved by a person. That person is Jesus Christ. Saving faith is not merely trusting, listen, in the capacity of Jesus. Saving faith is, is, is also trusting in the character of Jesus. The person of Jesus. So, friend, you're not enough. Simply not enough. You'll be better for it if you can just admit it. You're not enough. Jesus is more than enough to heal and to save. He's more than enough. And if you put your faith in, in Him, He's more than enough. And one of the things I was sort of wrestling with today was like, as I was kind of putting you know, the sort of thoughts together in the first service uh, today, and as we were kind of walking through it, man, I was like thinking about this, and going, you know, really, I really want people to, to take a pause right now and just evaluate. Maybe you have your faith in something that's not enough. Maybe your faith has been in your work, or your relationships, or your, you know, whatever, like your marriage, your faith has been in your capacity, your faith has been in whatever, I don't know, government, Maybe you just need to evaluate. Like, what am I really trusting? Is my faith in, in, the, right, in the right person? The passage ends with verse 54. This was now the second sign. First sign was turning water to wine. This is the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. His second sign. So that, asks, that begs the question, like, what is the sign pointing to? Signs point to things. So what is the sign pointing to? The first sign, turning water to wine. Man, he's the word. He creates everything. What's the second sign pointing to? Man, he is the one who brings ultimate healing. That's what the sign points to. The nature of his kingdom, the nature of his reality, what he's about doing. Could have chosen anything to do for a second sign. This is what he chooses to do for a second sign. It points to Revelation 21.4, when he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. When one day death will be no more. Neither will there be crying or mourning or pain because the former things will have passed away. And the reality spoken from the voice of the throne, behold, I'm making all things new, will be the reality. He is restoring and healing a world lost and broken by sin and making it all new. That's what he's doing. So these signs, they were intended to reveal God's glory, like His nature, what He's about. 
And we're called to reflect his glory to the world. We're called to reflect it, show it. Like these signs are going, hey, this is what God's kingdom is like. This is what Jesus is like. This is who he is. And as Christians, we are called to reflect that glory to the world. Tim Keller says, the logic is clear. If a person has grasped the meaning of God's grace in his heart, he will do justice. If he doesn't live justly, then we may say, then he may say with his lips, that he's grateful for God's grace, but in his heart, he is far from him. In other words, if you've received the grace of God, what happens is the grace of God begins to be something that you deliver to others. If you're a recipient of grace, you become a giver of grace. If you're a recipient of that wonderful glory of God, you begin to reflect that wonderful glory of God to the world. So Jesus has sent us to reveal his glory as salt and light. For a dark and dying world. Salt and light for a dark and dying world. Listen to Matthew 5.13. You are the salt of the earth. But the salt has lost its taste. How shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are, my friend, the light of the world. A city of hell cannot be hidden. hidden. You're, you're called to be salt, showing the healing, restorative power of God at work in the world. You're called to be light, displaying His glory for all to see. Like you're called to be salt and light. Now I've been thinking about this, and I, I, I came across, I was actually tending a... Uh, discipling out of racism uh, masterclass, and man, Joe Saxon delivered this wonderful message, and she reminded me of John Stott's book, Issues Facing Christians Today. It was actually originally published in 1984, in which John Stott handled all these different issues that uh, you know Christians were facing in the world in the day. It's relevant to today, uh, but it was written in 1984, first edition. In that first edition, he writes something that is of a sh- something like a short essay. You might even say this short essay could be titled, Where is the Church? And I'm just going to read it to you. Our Christian habit is to bewail the world's deteriorating standards with an air of rather self-righteous dismay. We criticize its violence, dishonesty, immorality, disregarded, disregard for human life, materialistic greed, the world is going down the drain, we say, with a shrug. But whose fault is it? Who is to blame? Let me put it like this. If the house is dark when nightfall comes, there's no sense in blaming the house. That is what happens when the sun goes down. The question to ask is, where is the light? Similarly, If the meat goes bad and becomes inedible, there's no sense in blaming the meat. This is what happens when bacteria are left alone to breed. The question to ask is, where is the salt? Just so. If society deteriorates and its standards decline until it becomes like a dark night or a stinky fish, there's no sense in blaming society. That's what happens when fallen men and women are left to themselves. And human selfishness is unchecked. The question to ask is, where is the church? Why are the salt and light of Jesus Christ not permeating and changing 
our society. So I want you to know, friend, that you're not enough. Jesus is more than enough. And if you're willing to accept him as being not enough, he's going to call you to follow him in faith. And if you follow him in faith, he's going to call you to be salt and light to a dying and dark world. He's going to say, do you see my glory? See what the second sign was pointing to? My glory? I want you to put that glory on display for the world to see. All right, so let's pray. Father, I, I do feel... Con- okay, I'll just pray. I'll pray this way, Father. I'll pray this way. Um, may, it, may it never be said in Albuquerque, where has New City Church been? Father, may, may it never be said at New City Church, where is Jesus? I just, I just confess for us all right now, we're not enough. Um, not enough, not enough, not enough. Lord Jesus, you are more than enough. We desperately need you. Uh, we are hopeless and helpless without you, powerless totally. We invite your power, but we want more than just your power in our life. We want you in our life. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the relationship you've offered to us, Lord Jesus. Thank you for being a friend of sinners. It is, a, it is in your name, Lord Jesus, that we pray with pride today. In Jesus' name, amen.